This is the Blueprint Podcast, bringing you the latest in cyber defense and security operations from top Blue Team leaders. Blueprint is brought to you by the SANS Institute and is hosted by SANS Senior Instructor John Hubbard. And now, here's your host, John Hubbard. We all know that moving workloads to the cloud can be tempting, exciting, but also incredibly risky for those that aren't ready. In this episode of Blueprint, we talk with Brandon Evans, cloud and app security expert on the items that you and your organization should be prepared for and the new risks you might face with your cloud-deployed data and applications. Stay tuned. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have Brandon Evans on the podcast, a application security uh, and cloud security consultant and expert, and also a certified SANS instructor and the lead author of SEC 510 Public Cloud Security. Welcome to the podcast, Brandon. Thanks for having me. So, Brandon, uh, you have a lot of really interesting skills under your belt, and I, I can't wait to dive into all of these topics around how do we secure and kind of monitor the cloud. But uh, to start off with our first typical question, uh, can we hear a little bit about your history and what brought you to where you are now in terms of working on uh, cloud and application security? Well, I think like most people, I did not grow up thinking, oh, I'm going to be an application or a cloud security expert. I'm going to defend different infrastructure in various different platforms. I didn't grow up thinking any of those things, just like basically everyone listening to this podcast did not grow up thinking those things because this is a relatively new kind of career. So what did I know I wanted to do? I knew I wanted to make video games. So I made a bunch of video games when I was a young teenager and they were terrible, but then I wanted to share them. And back then it was hard to share things on social media because social media didn't really exist. So I learned how to make web applications in order to share my games. And that got more and more robust as I created HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP, MySQL based applications. I ended up realizing, you know what? I'm not really cut out for this video game thing but I'm pretty good at making web applications. So I did that. I studied computer science at Binghamton University. Go Bearcats. I know that John also attended there for his master's. And from there, I made a couple of applications for a variety of different companies. I worked on a cloud surveillance platform for a company that was then acquired by Johnson Controls. I then worked for Assurian, which was a major or is a major provider of insurance for phones. If you have insurance on your phone from AT&T or Verizon, it's through Assurian. And then in the middle of my time there, you know, that was a big step up from a 30 person startup. I went to a company consisting of 25,000 individuals, but I don't know about you, but phone insurance is super boring. And I got really bored really quickly. And I said, I want to take the opportunity while I'm here to learn something new. And that's when I was fortunate enough to be able to take some SANS courses through the Security Champions, which we called Security Mavens program that I was a part of, and determined that I liked security a lot more than building things. And I also learned that a lot of security professionals don't know how to build applications, much less how to defend them in the cloud. So that got me into SANS. I started teaching for them. And eventually, I also moved over to Zoom Video Communications, where I ran their uh, development training program. So I have a lot of different experience that is hard to connect the dots. It's only easy to connect the dots looking backwards. Uh, but that's how I got to where I am today. 
Very cool. So yeah, a little bit of everything. It's always interesting hearing people's stories of how they kind of wove into information security. Because like you said, most people kind of did not really expect that growing up. I was one of those kids that was, you know, overclocking computers and kind of like diving into that stuff. But, you know, information security wasn't a thing back then that really existed that I could set my eye on. So eventually, once it showed up, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And now here I am as well. So uh, always fun to hear kind of people's origin story and, and where that came from. Uh, Quick question. What's the coolest game you ever developed? Oh, I don't even want to get into that because none of them were cool. But the (laughs) theme of the games that I created were basically video games that were based on the series Mega Man because I'm not an artist at all. I mean, I understood how to create game mechanics, but I'm not an artist whatsoever. So I thought, you know what, let's reuse all of these assets that were conveniently ripped from a variety of different games. And I made some terrible fan games based on those assets. None of them are worth playing. Don't even look for them. If you find them, I'm sorry. (laughs) So what was your favorite Mega Man? Oh, Mega Man X. Uh, That series was incredible. But I will plug one thing that I've created. I actually created a quote-unquote game recently inspired by a lot of my childhood. I actually have this web-based pixel puzzle application that you can look up, which allows you to generate a pixelized image out of a variety of different grids that you have to fill out. This was inspired by an old strategy guide that I used to play around with. Uh, Check it out. It's completely front-end based. There's no back-end to hack, and I think it's a lot of fun. (laughs) That's awesome. So I'm thinking way back in my head, uh, back to my NES days. Mega Man 2 is my favorite, and I believe there was a character in there called Cloud Man, if I'm not correct. Uh, or if I'm not incorrect. Uh, you're a little bit off. Cloud Man was in Mega Man 7, but Mega Man 2 is the one that everybody remembers. There was one in the cloud where you're like bouncing through clouds yep. in the that's level. Air- I don't remember. That's Air, Air Man. Man. Air Man. I knew it was somewhere on there. Well, anyway, I was going to say you should totally use uh, Air Man as your, or Cloud Man from Mega Man 7 as your logo online. Anyway, sure. speaking of cloud, <laughs> finally getting back around to it. Uh, what I wanted to talk to you about is the various cloud platforms, because being a, a co-author and, and the, the lead author of, of Sec510, which is a public cloud security course, uh, could you tell us a little bit about that course and what sort of things that dives into? Sure. So Sec510 is a course that covers all three cloud providers, 33%, 33%, 33%. And this is really important because the different clouds are basically like different languages. They don't translate very well to one another, even though people like to think that that's the case. It's very difficult to migrate workloads from AWS to Azure or to GCP. And more importantly, even if it was easy to do that. It's very difficult to do that in a secure fashion because concepts that work great in AWS fail miserably in Azure and vice versa because the way that these platforms were designed were very, very different. So if a company's like, all right, it's time for digital transformation, right? We're going to the cloud and we have all these various different workloads. Uh, where does someone even start when they're looking at these three? And how do you get a grasp on? I mean, I've seen the pictures where it's like thousands of services and names all over the place. Um, where does someone begin to get a grasp of what's the right one for the, the application or the workload or whatever it is that they're trying to uh, figure out where to host? In terms of deciding which cloud provider to go with, I think there's a lot of different factors that go into it. I think a lot of them are not related to security. 
Mm-hmm. One reason why people go with AWS so often is that there's so many tools that have been created for AWS because it was the first provider of its kind to come to market. So people can depend on that community, whereas they can't really do that for Google Cloud. Azure has been making some really big strides in this space, um, but you know they're still behind AWS. But they did have that really big Jedi contract from a couple years ago that was canceled and replaced with another contract from the DOD. Basically, they're getting a lot of money from the Department of Defense anyway. And if you're already using Microsoft uh, Microsoft software, it may make sense to use Azure for that reason. And Google Cloud has a lot of really unique offerings. They do a lot of stuff in AI, ML. So there's a lot of reasons why you'd want to pick one or the other. I think that's largely out of scope for the folks that are listening to this podcast, though, because that's really a technology, if not business decision. A lot of it comes down to what prices they can negotiate. So I think that we're here trying to solve the problems that were created by picking one or more cloud providers. And I would argue having multiple cloud providers is actually a detriment, even though I teach the multi-cloud course here at SANS. Now, How do you make that migration? I think there's a couple of different approaches. Everybody likes the idea of lift and shift, uh, but you know it's not quite as simple as that. And if it were simple, you'd be losing out on a lot of the benefits. If you're just running a virtual machine on-prem and you take it to the cloud, you're not taking advantage of all those hundreds of service icons that you mentioned earlier. So how do you take advantage of all those services? probably you're going to rewrite your application. It's really hard to retrofit those services in or make the business case to do that. So I think that when you're moving to the cloud, it's a good opportunity for you to justify just rewriting or significantly enhancing the application. Because a lot of things have changed in the last 20 years, not just cloud. So as someone maybe decides like, okay, this is the time, right? We're going to break this up into containers or we're going to refactor it however it needs to happen. Um, How does that change the typical attack surface for maybe a web application or something like that in a way that may have uh, impact for the security team? Like what, what uh, what are security teams needing to pay attention to as we, you know, lift and shift, but potentially also rewrite in the process? I think a big part of it is that you have to somewhat abandon network security as the solution to everything. I know a lot of people have already gotten past that concept, knowing that network security isn't everything. But in the cloud, it's especially difficult because there are some things that you cannot easily protect with network controls. For example, how do you take S3 off of the public internet? Well, you can't take the S3 service off the public internet, there are some techniques you can use to make it so that your data in S3 is only accessible within your network, but those are fairly difficult and also very few people do it. So a lot of the time it comes down to identity and access management. I think that that is the key skill for folks to understand, regardless of how they set up their application level authentication and authorization A big question you have to ask in the cloud is what services can my application access and in what ways and how do I lock down those connections so that, for example, my application has access to this data and not all of the data in my S3 
accounts or my S3 buckets within my account, I should say. So that comes down to to mapping out. Uh, that would be maybe different VPCs and and I well access controls on S3 buckets or Azure blobs or whatever it happens to be. Uh, ultimately, it gets down to the the principle of least privilege, right? Uh, but now it's on a new platform where the rules are different, the terms are different, and maybe the way you have to consider the attack surface is different. Is that a fair kind of a, a characterization of what's going on? Certainly, but I think by uh, force of habit, you started off with VPCs, which is the virtual private cloud service, which really is about network security. So that's still important for things like your databases shouldn't be on the public internet. But when you're using these cloud managed services, a lot of those controls either completely go away or are very difficult to manage. So it's really about identity more so than network. Not saying that network doesn't matter, but it should be the second thing that we mentioned. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the, the way you phrase that, right? Abandoned network security is a thing I was like, uh, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast who may have been defending for a long time, and I, I still talk about it all the time, right? There's kind of the network security monitoring, there's more of the endpoint and identity and more zero trusty kind of stuff going on now that's much more, you know, closer to what's happening in the cloud. And so, um, you know, hearing the words abandoned network security immediately makes me think, oh, how, where, why, you know, like, and what situations are we giving up on that? And what are we replacing it with? So yeah, certainly with things like S3, I think we're leaning more on audit logs and and locking it down to certain um, uh, users and, and things like that. Uh, whereas there's other parts of the cloud where maybe that probably still isn't the, the VPC thing, right? Uh, we're still maybe doing more traditional network security monitoring and in, in those kind of infrastructure environments. Is that true? It really depends. I mean, for example, you can run databases in the relational database service RDS, and that's literally just a virtual machine running databases. And you can Mm -hmm. protect it in the exact same way that you do on-prem. You want to make it so that it's not on the public internet and you access it via username and password. But then you have something like DynamoDB. And DynamoDB is a managed service. There is no way for you to take DynamoDB off the public internet in the exact same way that you cannot take S3 off the public internet. So now you have to think about who has access or what has access to that database and how can I prevent inappropriate access, reads, writes, updates, and deletes on this database so that only the appropriate applications and users can deal with that data. Gotcha. So if if an organization has not done anything with the cloud yet and they're looking to like jump into one of the platforms, uh, let's say AWS, because we mentioned Dynamo and S3, uh, and they currently have, you know, the typical like Active Directory setup, how are they going to be managing their uh, like identities in the cloud such that they can start to lock what's on prem to who's doing what in a cloud platform? So I... Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you want to approach this, have not been in a lot of organizations that have made that migration. I have thankfully been able to work on the next generation stuff or worked on companies that were always in the cloud. I do know that there are several services that you can use to integrate with Active Directory on AWS. They have AWS SSO, which is their proprietary single sign-on solution that you can sync with Active Directory. There's also the AWS Directory service, which you can sync your local Active Directory to. That's literally just Active Directory in the cloud. And then in Azure GCP, there's similar technologies. Azure, really, obviously, 
you know, there's going to be support there. Important note, Azure Active Directory and Microsoft Active Directory are not the same service and they're not trying to be the same service. And there's a lot of the details that we go into in Sec 510 about how these are fundamentally uh, different technologies. But one thing to be aware of to get back to your question about logs is basically every operation that happens to the cloud or I want to say within the cloud, but that's not 100% accurate, is logged by CloudTrail. So the really technical way of saying this is that CloudTrail logs every API call that is made to the cloud. So anything that you're creating in the cloud in terms of resources or any time that you're accessing a managed resource, that is going to be captured by CloudTrail. Whereas your application logs, those aren't necessarily interacting with cloud services and that would be managed by something else. And then you could take the CloudTrail logs and your application logs and query them using CloudWatch. I know the names get very complicated very quickly, but CloudWatch is like your centralized logging service. And then CloudTrail is one data point. You also have application logs. You also have flow logs, just like you would on-prem. So that would be similar to maybe what most people would have used as a SIM before, like a Splunk, but it's more like stuff in the cloud provided by AWS, you know, for AWS services primarily, although I believe you can throw whatever you want in CloudWatch. Um, that's kind of your your new centralized repository for logs if you want to use their solution for that sort of thing. I know that SIMs have a lot of bells and whistles that I don't think CloudWatch quite has. And I believe this because AWS also has for example, managed Kibana. They have a managed Elk stack that you can set up, which is AWS Elasticsearch. I think there was a lawsuit about this because Elasticsearch is also owned by Elastic. So there are the capabilities to use some of these technologies that you use on-prem in the cloud, basically as is. Splunk, I know, is a SaaS solution, so that obviously does not apply. It's comparable, but I wouldn't say it's the exact same thing. Right, but it's a kind of fulfilling the same sort of function in some ways of like collect all, like make visible what's happening. Sure. And then make those things uh, able, I assume you can do like threat detection type rules and, and monitoring for specific scenarios that you might want to alert the team on, something like that, right? Certainly could build those in. There are CloudWatch metrics. It's, it gets so confusing so quickly. So there's, when I say CloudWatch, I really mean CloudWatch logs. This is a repository for logs and the ability to search on those logs. There's also CloudWatch metrics, which allows you to create some metrics based on what logs are coming through. Like you have 100 logs with a particular message in it. And you can also have CloudWatch events, which trigger some action after you've gone over a particular threshold with your metrics. So you could use that to create some of these rule sets. Now, I'm not a defender by trade, but I do know that there are a lot of these rule sets that have already been created and published to open source repositories that you could get started with right away. So I would definitely not try to reinvent the wheel here. It's important to understand these concepts, but you may want to start off with a third-party rule set. If you've been with us through season one and two, you've undoubtedly heard me talk about some of the courses that I've authored for SANS that are near and dear to my heart as a lifelong blue teamer. What you may not know is that every year and multiple times per year, these courses continue to get better. 
One of my favorite classes to teach is SEC 450 Blue Team Fundamentals, which is a technical class I designed for anyone working as a cybersecurity analyst for teams large or small. We've continued to update the class and bring in new information on the newest threats, data, and protocols that any defender needs to be aware of. In the most recent course refresh that went live just about a month ago, I've continued to hone the content, diving further into cloud defense, automation examples, detection for modern attacks and attackers, including common things like ransomware and much more. And we've also brought increased focus on new and more difficult to monitor network protocols like HTTP2 and HTTP3, DNS over HTTPS, and TLS 1.3, things that every blue team needs to be familiar with or will need to be very soon. Every version of this class comes with continued focus and updates, and this class is huge. I don't know of any other security operations course out there that contains nearly a thousand pages of slides and notes, 15 hands-on labs with a virtual machine to go with them, including another 400 pages of step-by-step exercises for those hands-on exercises, video walkthroughs of all of those exercises, MP3s, a course wiki, and a whole day CTF where you can apply the skills you've learned in class throughout the week. My goal with this class is to bring you the absolute most comprehensive security operations and analysis course possible, and I'm continuing to strive with every release to keep updating the course and deliver on that mission. The depth of content in this course is something that SANS is uniquely positioned to deliver, and I hope you'll check it out if you have a free moment. Go to sans.org sec450 to check out the free course demo, which is a free full section of the course, and an in-depth syllabus to see if it's right for you. We have options to take it live in person, live online, or at your own pace with SANS On Demand. And unlike some other training courses, SANS and I are there to help you along the way with personalized help and explanations for any questions you may have. With the recent release of the GIAC GSOC certification, anyone that takes the class can now get the corresponding certificate that shows that you've put in the work and have what it takes to go head-to-head with modern attackers. I really think we put together something special here, and I hope you check it out. Thanks for listening, and now on with the show. So it sounds like it's more of a, an operational store of logs as opposed to what would be your primary way of doing threat hunting or detection. And you would probably take what's in CloudWatch and pass it off to a more security-oriented monitoring solution. That is certainly something you could do. You could also set up monitoring capabilities with CloudWatch metrics or events. You can also use a variety of third-party tools that are able to analyze Uh, maybe not threats, but also uh, configurations, bad configurations, or you can export it to a tool that you're already familiar with. That's certainly an option. I know that one common use case for what we call traffic mirroring is the ability to forward traffic from one virtual machine to another virtual machine running traditional IDS software so you can analyze what's going on there. Um, traffic mirroring is a little bit difficult to set up. So I don't know how many people are actually doing a lot of these things. And my perspective is that I think a lot of organizations think, oh, it's in the cloud. I don't need to worry about this. Or, oh, it's in the cloud. Uh, everybody understands how to defend the cloud. And I think just from my limited perspective, that's not the case. And as a result, uh, I don't know how many people are actually doing any of the things that I'm mentioning. Yeah, that was where I was going to go next is like uh, being able to do this kind of detection is fundamentally kind of uh, supposes you know what to look for and what you're trying to detect. And so a big part of defending anything is having a threat model and like what could go wrong here. So 
where might organizations be able to go when they're shifting stuff into the cloud as a good resource for what's the bad stuff that could occur as I throw my data in S3 or throw a bunch of identity information into Azure AD or anything like that? I think a great place to start is the Center for Internet Security or CIS benchmarks for the big three cloud providers. Now, these don't really talk about threats nearly as much as they talk about bad misconfigurations that can potentially lead to exploits. So you can look at the various things that can go wrong. For example, having an open S3 bucket, having services that could be protected by network protection on the public internet, having a lack of encryption in various different services. And from there, you can probably derive some of the worst things that can happen within the cloud. But I think that a lot of organizations are just getting the absolute basics wrong. So there's a lot of things that you can do from the get-go to help make your organization more secure. Just Take those buckets and make them not publicly accessible. I mean, I can't believe we're talking about this as long as it has been that we've been talking about public buckets. It's just unbelievable. But there's also a lot of protections you can put on top of that to ensure that buckets are not public or you can look at access logs to ensure that things were not inappropriately used. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, that's uh, kind of where I was going to go next is like, what are the most common issues you see that people just totally overlook other than, you know, publicly available S3 buckets, which is something we've all heard about and constantly are sick of saying like another one. <laughs> what else are people doing? Yeah, I mean, for me, the biggest thing is just application security. Now, I'm mm -hmm. obviously very biased because I'm an application developer, but we talk about a lot of different cases, a lot of things that can go wrong. And my favorite example of this is we talk about disk-level encryption in the cloud and how easy it is to turn on disk-level encryption. But I give them the, I ask them the question, what can go wrong if we do not encrypt these disks? Well, physical theft, right? Or inappropriately repurposing this hardware. And then I posed this question to the students. I asked them, what is more likely? Someone breaks in to an AWS data center, steals the specific disk that you have your data on, is able to get out of there alive, and is able to read the contents of the disk because it is not encrypted. That's scenario one. Or scenario two, a developer created an endpoint without any authorization that gets a lot of data shown to the requester. And when I say endpoint here, I mean an API endpoint, not a you know computer. I've seen the second option happen much more often where people just don't get the basics about application authentication and authorization. And then, and then you have the option fetching that data that is protected by the VPC unencrypting all of that data and just delivering it right to the user as if they did, you know, didn't need to prove anything about themselves. So I think application security is still fundamentally important, possibly more important because once you compromise an application in the cloud, you could potentially pivot to other cloud services and get much, much more access. Great example of this, Capital One in 2019. There was an issue in their infrastructure, they had a proxy server that was misconfigured. Okay, whatever. But that proxy server and its misconfiguration allowed for the attacker to download 100 million credit card applications from an S3 bucket that wasn't public. So, okay, application security clearly can lead to other problems within the cloud. So that's where I focus my energy personally. 
And so how would you prevent something like that where uh, an organization – that's kind of like internal pivoting, but it's in the cloud, right? Like you get access to one resource and then you just say like, oh, the domino falls here and then there and there and there. And eventually you get to this data and, uh, you know, encrypted or not, right? Um, something eventually is going to have access to it. So what what is the uh, the solution to those kind of things, even if you're keeping your stuff off the public internet and, you know, unprotected? I think it gets back to IAM, but let me – delve into that a little bit more clearly and more in depth because it may be difficult for folks to understand I am here because it probably means something very different from what you all are used to. So when I'm talking about I am, I'm talking about access to these cloud services. Who is able to talk to the S3 service? What actions are they allowed to perform under or on what resources? Now, in the example of this proxy server, this server had permission to access S3. And there were no conditions on how it could access S3 at the resource level. We don't know this for sure, but it's, in my view, I'm I'm positive this is what happened. They probably had some limits on the actions, but no limit on the resources. And there's a reason why this keeps happening. I can get into that later if you'd like. But because this application was compromised, the credentials powering identity and access management were compromised, basically. And now the attacker was able to impersonate that proxy server. And because the proxy server had the ability to download any file from any S3 bucket, so was the attacker. So what is the fundamental thing that we have to lock down here? Identity and access management. Why the heck does this proxy server have access to this data in S3? The answer is, They shouldn't have. There's no way you could possibly justify that. So by locking down identity and access management, you are going to prevent the attacker from being able to pivot as well as they would otherwise, because the IAM credentials will be exposed. They can now impersonate the server or impersonate this user, depending on the attack. But what can that user do? Very minimal things. You can layer some network uh, controls on top of that, both to prevent direct access to virtual machines or databases, as well as you can actually create some IAM conditions that use network rules saying, hey, no one is allowed to access the S3 service for my S3 data unless they're doing it from the VPC. I mentioned or I alluded to this earlier. Again, I don't want to get your hopes up because this happens so infrequently, but it all comes down to identity and access management. The threats that exist on-prem still exist, but now you have this entire additional surface area, which is the cloud API layer. We'll be back after a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode, then you're undoubtedly interested in building the strongest security operations team that you can. For those who want to go even deeper, did you know that SANS has not one, but two courses that cover security operations centers as well? For the leaders, managers, and directors out there, my co-author Mark Orlando and I offer 551, Building and Leading Security Operations Centers. This course covers building your team, your physical and virtual workspace, getting the right data into your tools, and then focusing on security priorities through everyday execution of important security tasks and building the best SOC team possible. For the technical practitioners out there, my course SEC 450, Blue Team Fundamentals, Security Operations and Analysis, is designed to cover everything you need to jump in being the best SOC analyst that you can be. We cover important data types, SOC tools, security logs, malware, analysis technique, automation, and much, much more. 
In addition, if you want to prove you can deliver the best on any security team, both courses have an accompanying certification available from GIAC. That's the GSOM for 551 and the GSOC for 450. Check out both courses and free demos available on the SANS website. You can get registered today for an in-person course at one of our many events, or go to On Demand and take either class anywhere at your own pace. Thanks for listening. So it's it sounds to me very much like uh, analogous to a on-prem pen test where maybe administrator credentials were shared across multiple machines. And so you get one, one place, you can use it in other places and do other things that you shouldn't be able to do. And ultimately the solution is like very granular permissions, right? Uh, is there a tool set? Is there a method? Is there a resource that we can point people at for how to correctly track and uh, what to kind of aim for when it comes to getting permissions uh, down to that granular of a level? Because that's, the, you know, on-prem, it's the same thing, right? It's like, how do I know exactly what everyone needs and, and not disrupt my own business? Is there an easy solution to that? So let me first clarify one thing. Your analogy is really strong, but there's one big difference, which is that on-prem, you'd find, let's say, credentials to a database, or you'd find credentials to this logging server. When you find credentials in the cloud, those credentials can do anything that they are authorized to do, not necessarily for the same service. So one set of credentials can be used to access S3, Dynamo, anything else that is controlled at the IAM level. It could theoretically lead to an entire account takeover, which I'm going to blow your mind for a second. This is my favorite thing to say in SEC 510. By default in GCP, if you compromise a single virtual machine, you basically compromise the entire project. In it, it, I know it's hard to believe. Like literally, if you compromise one VM, you can launch other VMs. It's absolutely absurd. The other cloud providers have better, more reasonable defaults, but those defaults can be overridden. So I think a big part of this is to look at your actual assignments of IAM permissions in your various cloud providers, see what policies are attached to what entities. One of the things that is in the CIS benchmarks is anytime you see a policy in AWS that says star, star, meaning any action on any resource, that is something that you really need to bring up because that literally could lead to an entire account takeover. You don't want anybody with that administrative level access. But you have to go further than that. You have to do reviews of your IAM permissions, just like anything else. And that's one of the many reasons why I'm a big fan of infrastructure as code, because now you can take those IAM configurations, put them in code, and have them go through the same code review process that theoretically your developers are doing for everything else, and maybe include the security team on that review. Now, from a detection perspective, that's where CloudTrail comes into play. You can start looking at the different actions that these different entities are doing. And if you see that an action that hasn't been done in 100 days happens today, that may be something you want to take a look at. So you have CloudTrail for monitoring, but really, from my perspective, it should not get to you all in the first place. We need to get those policies locked down before you have to do any kind of response. Yeah, so we're looking for, in a lot of cases, it sounds like compromised credentials, doing something on your CSP that you didn't expect them to be doing because now it's an attacker in control. I know one example that I always hear about is like, 
someone compromises some resource and then it has the ability to spin up more VMs. They spin up the super high power GPU instance and start mining themselves crypto coin or whatever, stuff like that. Uh, any other like common actions that uh, defenders might want to look for beyond someone that wasn't unexpected spinning up a super expensive VM? So you can install the same kinds of agents onto your virtual machines and your containers if you want to analyze cases in which maybe crypto mining is happening on one of your VMs. So that's one example that comes to mind. I just started thinking a little bit when you mentioned spinning up VMs for cryptocurrency purposes. Yes, that happens. It's shocking to me that that happens because at minimum, your operations and developers folks, they really need to recognize read-only actions and write actions. The ability to create VMs no application should ever have that ability. And if, they're, if they have that ability, it's because someone just doesn't know what they're doing. There's no way someone purposefully gave the application that specific right. So without going and spinning up uh, too much on that topic, can you uh, repeat the second part of your question? Oh, just what other common scenarios? If someone's looking at their cloud trail logs, like what are what are the most common attacks or signs of compromise, I guess we, we should say, other than like starting up new services and VMs that were unexpected? Perfect. So that, that gets the other part of this equation, which is reading contents, reading resources, accessing a variety of types of data, right? Because again, the creation case is hopefully getting much more rare because people generally speaking, I think, are getting good at selecting the policy that says read only instead of the policy that says full access. Even though the read only policy gives you way too many permissions, not only the ability to get metadata about these resources that you may not want to expose, like when it was created or any number of other pieces of metadata, but you also have no scope on the resource cause, no scope saying that... Uh, this particular bucket is acceptable. This bucket is not acceptable. So I think it's just largely, I know it's a boring answer, but access logs. What's being accessed? When is it being accessed? Why is it being accessed? And looking for anomalies of kind of, you know, against normal, right? And looking for like one account, maybe reading all your S3 files and has never done that before or something, yes. I suppose. Yeah. Awesome. What about um, one of the things I did want to get to here was the, I would say, more ephemeral services, containers, serverless functions, stuff like that. Uh, that's a very different realm than I think traditional defense is used to when you have something that blinks into existence and goes away or it's just code that's running. Uh, any kind of advice on looking at those kind of services in the cloud and, and how defenders might either threat model them or what to expect, what to collect in that scenario. Awesome. So I played around with containers for a little bit and kind of skipped that generation into serverless because for my use cases, serverless is so easy to get things up and running. I have you know relatively simple applications that I write at this point in my career. And as a result, serverless is my main tool of choice. And a lot of the individuals that I've worked with have also been serverless first, unless there's a compelling reason to use VMs or containers. So I know a little bit about container security, um, maybe a little bit more than a little bit to be fair to myself, but I know a lot about serverless security. So let's start with that. Um, one of the really 
interesting things uh, that came up in the past is I was attending this cloud security alliance meeting and we were talking to this person who specialized in digital forensics. And he talked about how important it is to capture the memory of your virtual machines when there was a possible compromise. And I'm like, how do you do that in serverless? Like, like seriously, how do you do that in serverless? So maybe a good thing to say before we go into defense mechanisms is let's define what we actually mean about serverless. Serverless does not mean there are no servers. I'm going to repeat that again. There are servers in serverless. What it means is that we're going to spin up a container that is going to run our code whenever a particular event happens and eventually have that container go away. We don't care where it's running specifically within our region. All we care about is that our code is run, that we get the result, and that it eventually goes away. It doesn't happen instantaneous, by the way. And there's actually some security concerns with the fact that those containers last more than one invocation. We talk a lot about that in 5.10. But in terms of monitoring serverless is you need to persist those logs externally. You can take the application level logs that are in Lambda, for example, and write them to CloudWatch. And sure, the container is going to go away eventually, but those CloudWatch logs are there until you decide to stop paying for them or you run out of space or whatever. So that's one of the key things to be aware of is that if you want to monitor for things that are happening in serverless, you need to externalize those logs, those data sources. You can also get metrics about how often the Lambda is run via what API, for example. So you can have API gateway level logs as well as your CloudWatch application level logs and say, okay, this Lambda is being invoked and there's no corresponding API gateway call hmm, maybe there's another way that this Lambda is accessible. Is that acceptable? I don't know. So I think the big moral of the story is if you have ephemeral environments, your logs cannot be ephemeral or else you've got nothing. Can you give us an example of something that would be an attack where, because uh, people might be thinking, right? Maybe they have no idea what, what serverless is, right? Like a serverless application and how an attack on that might look versus a traditional web application uh, and then something where looking at like the frequency of it, of it being called also might be an indicator of an attack as well. So I really like serverless as a security professional. I think that serverless makes things, relatively speaking, better because in a traditional application, you have a couple deficiencies. One is that application runs for a long time, which means that malware and command and control connections can be persisted. And the other thing is in a monolithic application, you typically are going to grant way too much access to that VM. Because if one functionality of your monolithic application needs to talk to S3 and another functionality of your application has to talk to DynamoDB, you need to now grant that monolithic application both S3 and DynamoDB access, whereas if those were two functions, you could give them S3 access and then the other function, DynamoDB access, and not give them both permissions. So I actually think that serverless is basically better in every way from a security perspective. However, application security is still so critical. And if I have to give serverless any dings on their report card, it's really the marketing. 
And I think that a lot of people see that marketing and say, oh, serverless is running a very small amount of code. That code clearly cannot do a whole lot of damage. When in reality, it can do literally anything that any other piece of compute can do. So if people are applying the same application security and configuration management principles that they do in their monolithic applications as they do in their serverless environments, I think you'll actually find a net increase of security in your organization. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting kind of a paradigm shift and in, in a way of thinking about like what can go wrong and what's the same and what's different. So it's, it's always interesting kind of hearing people's takes who are experts on, on what we need to worry about and what we don't need to worry about and how we, uh, how we figure that out and start monitoring for those things as a security team that may have never run into this stuff before. Um, one of the things I wanted to cover uh, before we run out of time today is a, a shift in topic here towards an important announcement that you have to make for uh, all the listeners of this podcast, I'm sure going to be particularly interested in. So let me uh, toss it back over to you for uh, some exciting news. Yes, I'm excited to announce the launch of the Cloud Ace podcast, which will be launching on September 28th of 2022. This podcast is very similarly modeled to the Blueprint podcast. We're going to be on all of the same platforms, and the length of the episodes will be relatively the same. And we're going to be talking about cloud security in a variety of different areas, not just in terms of monitoring, but also AppSec, penetration testing, anything that would happen in the cloud. So we've got a lot of great guests for season one. We have Anton Shavakin back on the podcast. Now, I listened to the Blueprint episode with Anton, and I made sure to ask questions that were very different from those so you can get his perspective about monitoring and defending and then get his perspective of building Google Cloud or helping to build Google Cloud and a couple other curveballs that I sent his way because his background and mine are quite different as well because he comes from a more defender background. But obviously, being involved with Google, Google Cloud, I think you're going to really enjoy that episode as a complement to the Blueprint one. We also have Frank Kim, who's going to talk a lot about his experience going from on-prem to the cloud, how different organizations decide to go to the cloud from a business perspective and how to lead in that area. And then we have an I Am panel. I mentioned several times on this podcast that I am is the single most important topic within the cloud. And as a result, we got some of the best experts in the entire world representing AWS, Azure, and GCP security, GCP I am. We got Kat Traxler, who's our resident GCP expert, who is also the lead author of SEC 549, our cloud enterprise architecture class. We have Carl Fossen, who is an expert at Azure offense and defense. And we have Kyler Middleton, who is a phenomenal expert when it comes to AWS IAM, used to work for a company that just did IAM. So I think that you'll get a lot of variety. You'll get some experience. Um, you'll get to learn from some folks experience defending, some folks leading, and also a lot of technical practitioners that you can hopefully derive some logging and monitoring use cases from. Awesome. Sounds sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to be subscribing to that. Is that a do you have a, a specific type of listener in mind? Is it someone that's like brand new to the cloud looking to pick up some stuff or kind of technical people, CISO level managers or all the above, a little bit of everything? 
We definitely want to target everyone, but we definitely focus on the folks that are new to the cloud because first of all, basically everybody's new to the cloud. Let's be real. We're all learning and security is pretty far behind, you know, where technology is. That's just a constant fact. So we're really focusing most of our energy on people new to the cloud. And even when we're talking to folks that are extremely experienced, we start off by asking them, how did you break into the cloud? What lessons did you learn? How did things work differently once you entered that environment? So I think there's something for everyone, but definitely don't be intimidated if you don't have any cloud experience. If you are in that group, this podcast is for you. Very cool. Yeah, that, I'm really excited to, to hear what you have cooked up there. It sounds like your first couple episodes are going to be really, really useful and have some some very interesting stuff in there. Uh, before we finish for the day, is there any resources that you think anyone uh, listening to this podcast should go look at, whether it's about defense or just good resources for you know cloud compliance checks or really anything, right? Um, what, what should we throw in the show notes that you think is like the best thing for people to look at from uh, according to your class or otherwise? I think the best resource I can provide is really just sans.org slash cloud because we have a lot of great white papers, posters, and cheat sheets. And we also reference a lot of other external resources. So if there is a resource that I personally have been really uh, enjoying, I probably would have created some content for SANS about that resource. But I think that there's a lot of other great resources out there. We have the Google Cloud Security Podcast. There's an Azure Security Podcast as well. Uh, there are a couple other cloud podcasts, not, not a whole lot. We're pretty early in the market, but there are some. And there's just a lot of great open source repositories there's a lot of communities around these different cloud providers, a lot of vendors who are going to try to sell you a lot of expensive tools that you may or might, may not need in this space. I think one of the big things is that as you use these resources, stay curious, make sure you know what people are actually talking about. Don't just assume that this tool or this resource is going to solve all your problems. Even if that's true, you want to be able to verify that that is the case. And you can only do that through education about how these cloud providers actually work. And as a result, I hope that folks will take classes from the SANS cloud curriculum as well. We have an introductory, very introductory level course 388, which basically goes over the fundamentals of the cloud. 488 gets into a lot more depth about how to secure the cloud um, at a relatively basic level. And then 500 level courses like 510 go into a lot more depth as well as explore the other cloud providers or specialize in different areas like our cloud pen testing class or our DevSecOps class. So I hope to see you in class and I hope you enjoy the free resources we provided as well. Feel free to follow me at Brandon Max Evans on Twitter, or you can follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn a lot more. I'm not a huge Twitter fan, but I'm trying I'm trying. <laughs> Very awesome. Yeah. Um, the one thing I, I wanted to add to that as well is a lot of people don't know this, but any class, uh, anyone is interested in SANS listeners and, and otherwise, uh, there is a demo that you can do for basically every course on every uh, web page for that course. If you just click the little button, there is a free section. If you're like, oh, I'm interested in Brandon's 510. I don't know if it's going to be too advanced or whatever it is. You can always check out a whole free section of a class if anyone's uh looking to take any of those things and dive deeper into that. So thank you so much, Brandon, for being on the podcast with us. We'll make sure to get those resources in the footnotes for the episode and looking forward to subscribing to Cloud Aces and hearing what you got for us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. I will catch you later. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you.